Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. We are wrapping up our week with Joey Landreth, and I'm here with Andy Ellis. Hello. Today's topic uh, was also kind of spawned from you going through a bunch of your old cassettes, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, spoil the punchline of, of what this is going to be about this episode, but uh, back in 1970, I was the songwriter for a hard rock band, and so I had to wrap my head around, you know, writing songs for the band. And in recent weeks, days, I have been going through some of these tapes and listening to myself 30, 40 years ago. And it's been quite a, quite a journey. Um, but I wanted to hear Joey, who is from several generations younger than me, a working musician, you know, how is he using technology today, bending it to his will, what has changed and what hasn't about writing songs for a band? Yeah, and it, he really kind of opens up about his process with his brother and the brothers Landris, how they work mm -hmm. through tunes, and and even how sometimes you may or may not be like too attached. I know one thing you brought being too attached to, to a demo and, and how now, you know, with a laptop and an interface, you can get sounds that are just as good as anything you hear on the radio. If you know how to use, use the tools, right. And it's not, you know, they don't have to be expensive tools at that, you know? Right. So, uh, this is our final episode here with Joey Landreth. Uh, they just is brothers Landreth just came out with the new North Americana sessions. Uh, it's a three song live, uh, record that's out on all the various streaming services. So I'd encourage you to go check that out and all their other, they have a handful of other records and Joey has some solo records as well. Uh, I'd highly encourage you to go check those out. And, uh, we're going to wrap up this week with Joey Landreth. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, we're here once again with our week with Joey Landreth. It's Joey Landreth week here, Chasing Frets. Come on, and it's the second best thing next to Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are going to wrap up with a look at something I've wanted to talk to you uh, for a long time about because I'm kind of fascinated. I can kind of wrap my head more around what you're doing guitar-wise, but it's the songwriting stuff that kind of baffles me, at how you pull these songs out of thin air, it seems. Ah. Oh. Yeah, and I have a, a related question that I'd like to lead with here. And, um, and, and, and technology is often tied into songwriting. 
And some people would dispute that. They would say, no, 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 songwriting is this pure thing. You know, give Dylan a guitar and put him in a corner and he'll come up with a song. But um, I'm on a personal odyssey of going through, I have a crate of cassettes that I would capture songwriting ideas from that date back, some of these ideas date back when I started doing this to 1971. So I'm calling it Message in a Bottle. I just started this and I pull these cassettes out and I get to hear myself decades earlier sketching, sketching, sketching on cassettes, you know. But it's really rough audio. I mean, this is the thing. You know, it was a handheld Sony. It was the whole point was just that I'm sort of singing to myself, you know, going around in circles and trying to capture something, but I didn't want to lose it. Well, there was never a question in those days, you know, and I've, I've gotten as late as 1995 on cassette in this batch. There was never a question of taking your cassette tape sketch and pushing it over into the album. Not in those days, but in today, you're of the generation where your sketch ideas can conceivably roll off into Pro Tools into, or maybe even start in Pro Tools and become the album. Do you do that or do you sketch your songs separately and then redo them for your recordings? Oh, that's an awesome question. Um, uh, definitely up until recently, they were, they were separate sort of vocations, like the, the sketch of the song and the demo and then the master were all kind of different things. Um, and I have... I have definitely taken an interest into in in recording in these last sort of five years, and um, now now as of August first, finally actually find myself working out of, you know, a, an actual recording studio, which is pretty awesome. Um, nowadays, I definitely have been writing. You know, it's a lot easier just because I you know I, I work in my studio, I write in my studio, I practice in my studio. So, um, throwing up a microphone and recording directly into Pro Tools is definitely something that's that's doable. Um, I do find, though, for me, crafting crafting the song and then crafting the recording kind of do live in different spaces for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't really found myself using any of those sketches yet on a master. Um, but it is getting closer and closer. And I think as I get older, it's I'm finding myself much less concerned with the, the perfectionism that I that I was obsessed with in my younger years and a little more interested in the honesty of a moment, you know, like when you mm-hmm. when you first capture the song for the first time and you're delivering it with the most amount of feeling and closeness to the idea that you can when, you know, when the idea is first conceived. There's something really beautiful about that. On our last Brothers Landreth record, there's one track that we had we had tried to put down with the full band and when we listened back at the end of the day it was just kind of not really it wasn't really hitting us right it was like oh this sounds nice but it's not it's not doing it it's not getting it across and so um i think my brother said well why don't we just start from scratch and why don't you just go into the booth and record a scratch and then we'll get started again tomorrow we'll do something different maybe we'll just take a different approach so so okay cool so I took um, I took a resonator. Um, shout out to Mule Resonator Guitars. Um, I took my Mule into the booth. Our engineer Paul Yee, who is also my landlord in my new studio space and very dear dear old friend, he threw up two microphones, and 
you know, I think it was part of partly because making the the record itself was actually really emotional because we, you know, at one point in time, we weren't sure if there was ever going to be a second Brothers Landreth record. And so when we did start working on that second record, um, it, it, it was heavy. It was really, really heavy. And so there was that mixed with having spent the entire day working and just being kind of tired. But I got into the booth and just recorded the song and that was the that was the take that wound up going on the record and i didn't even know while i was playing i was just kind of like an, you know to the point where i actually sabotaged the ending and i had to go back in and punch in the last chord because i literally played this like you know like just yeah. sort of bs <laughs> yeah, and then one of those, yeah. yeah and my brother you know went on the talk back and was like what are you doing I was like, what? He's like, man, that was really magical. I was like, nah, 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 it wasn't. And then we went back. Anyway, all that to say, um, <laughs> I am definitely getting closer and enjoying the process of trying to capture those moments a little bit more. Um, and some of some of the material that we've written for this next record, for the third Brothers Landreth record, um, I think the, the, the sort of songwriting demos will actually probably turn into... Uh, master recordings, at least pieces of them will, um, which is really fun. I mean, I, I spent the, uh, the, a big part of last year and then much of this year in, you know, once the quarantine hit, um, entertaining the idea of trying to make a record from my, my home studio before I moved into this space. And so it was like, you know, trying to come up with ways to create drum tracks that, that didn't sound, you know, necessarily like, like, programmed but also you know I didn't want to I, I wanted to try and make music from home and and I can't play drums one and if I could play drums I certainly wasn't going to be able to record them in my apartment so it was like well, what you know how do I get around this and so trying to find a way that to come up with drum parts or percussion parts that still sounded cool but um you know wasn't trying to be something that it wasn't I'm you know anyway um so some of these recordings are probably going to make it on the record, um, although I do think the plan is to replace my my, my fake drums. But uh, do you find now? I asked, done a lot of guitar interviews. I've asked some form of this question a lot, and I, the typical answer is, well, every song kind of has its own unique journey of how it comes from mm. germ of an idea to what people hear on a record. But now that you've made all these records, done all this experience in the studio have you noticed patterns in your creativity as far as how your songs kind of come together yeah yes absolutely and actually it's this this has kind of come up recently because my brother really wanted to we're in the we're in the position for the first time ever on you know as a solo artist and as a band member to take our time making a record because i mean we're not going to be going back on the road anytime soon um but uh, uh, so, you know, my brother said, one thing I'd really love to do is do pre-production. And, and when he said that, I was just like, uh, yeah, no, I don't think I don't think I want to do that. Um, and what I what I kind of realized is the way that we've made records in the past is a song, a song gets written, um, vocal and acoustic guitar goes into your iPhone, into the into the iPhone memo app. And then um, we send that to our producer, Murray, and he gives us some feedback. We get together. We do a little bit of fat trimming. You know, pre-chorus on this song is the second pre-chorus should be shorter. Um, let's make that minor chord a major chord. You know, things like that. 
very, very subtle tweaks. And then I write a chart, we go into the studio, and then we just sort of let it happen. Um, and that's kind of my favorite way to do it. I've, I've made records with other people where there's like massive pre-production that goes into it. Like you sit down and plan out every moment and, you know, um, this is, you know, I made one record where every instrumentalist sat down with the producer beforehand and mapped out their parts. And so when I got to the studio, there was like, there, there were files on a thumb drive. It was like, here are the parts that you came up with for this song. And, and, and that was really interesting, but definitely was not my favorite way to make a record. And I, and I, and I realize now, you know, with, with a little bit of distance from that and then talking to my brother about doing pre-production that the, one of the patterns for me is I love the spontaneity. You know, um, we get musicians together that I, I think understand what the music is that we're making. So you're not, you don't have to go, hey, 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 like double kick this duh, has no place on this. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're, you're not having conversations like that. You're, you, we, we, we always are looking for musicians who understand the idiom. And, and then it's just do your thing. Like, you know, uh, uh, um, take our song and run it through your own filter. And then while, you know, so-and-so drummer makes this choice, that's going to make me play this way. And then my brother responds to that or he responds to the drummer. And then that, you know, I really love that interaction. That's a really important part of the process for me in making records. And an interesting challenge while I was trying to make recordings on my own in my apartment is how can I still do that? sort of reactionary playing when I don't have a room full of musicians to play off of. And then, you know, you kind of have to trust yourself to make certain decisions and go, oh, now that I did that, I made this part, this organ part does this, or a synthesizer does that, or a guitar, acoustic guitar does that. Now I have an idea for a background harmony. And so just like being, being kind of open to the, um, to the, to the muse to kind of step in and, and take you by the hand and take you somewhere. That's, that's probably my biggest, um, pattern if if i if i can even call it that or con concept that's how i like to make records when when i listen to contemporary rock bands and compare it to the music that i grew up with that i still feel closest to what you touched on just now was uh, i realize is is missing in modern commercial music to me to my ears by and large and that is people gathering in a studio this is the way they used to do it it used to be affordable and it's the only way you did it you you hung out in the studio mm -hmm. for, for a couple of weeks but i think of the band you know and those great the first three albums of the band you know and i think of the rolling stones if you've ever seen uh film footage of them shooting uh uh, yeah, I mean, it was John Luke Godard's movie, but they were uh, writing and rehearsing and playing and recording Sympathy, Sympathy for the Devil all in one. I mean, they were writing it and recording it, and that was the song. And, you know, they're all stoned out of their minds and wandering around, and this thing happens. And the engineers, of course, are, are, are on it like hawks. You know, it's like, don't, what's the, the old adage? Don't ever let the musician step into the studio without the tape running. Yeah. You know, because you never know. And, and, and today, is, so this is the technology part of the song craft, and I, you know, I'll be accused of sounding like an old fart, but today it's so easy to you know, take a drum loop, an Apple drum loop, and then you put on this other thing, and you make music by yourself, and it's this layer cake, and it can be, man, you've got mastering plugins, and you can just do all kinds of audio goodness, but you just got one person sort of building this little Lego 
thing as opposed to this chaos of rock musicians <laughs> and Little Feet were the same way and the Grateful Dead, all their classic stuff and the Beatles and, you know, I, I miss that and it's, 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 it's ugly sometimes, you know, because sometimes the guys in the Who were not getting along. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I I mean, I I didn't I didn't come up in that time, so it, you know, that that kind of nostalgia for that that thing is not even really in my vocabulary. I I just came up in a time when like I never recorded to tape. I've only recorded to Pro Tools or Logic. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. one time I recorded to Radar. <laughs> um yeah. but uh uh yeah, so that's that that kind of thing is not really in my it's not even really in my rearview mirror, um, and I, I think like definitely when you're talking about commercial music, I think there's a lack of imagination in some things, but there's also a lot of really really great pop music. But you kind of have to you kind of have to listen to it in a different way, I think. Um, mm. But then there's also people like uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Ethan Gruska. He's like a He's an L.A. singer, songwriter, piano player guy. And I mean, he's definitely playing with musicians as well, but there's also this really, really beautiful, chaotic element to his, his production where, I mean, I think he's, he himself is piecing together a lot of stuff. Like, so I think that there's a way to do it, especially when you're making music on your own. You have to be, at least I try to, to be as, um, as reactionary as possible. So it's not just like throw down a drum loop and now throw down a bass something that, you know, and quantize the hell out of it and loop it every eight bars. Um, but, you know, trying to think of, like, what what would this sound like if a band was playing it? Well, the, you know, the drummer might change the hi-hat pattern or he or or the kick pattern might change or this fill might come out of nowhere. Like, trying to create those elements, and I think it's helpful to to have the experience of playing in a, in a great band with, with players that are, you know, super solid musicians but then also very adventurous like that's that's definitely an asset for me um but yeah it is an interesting time it's an interesting time and music music is evolving in a really really big way um and uh who knows where it's gonna wind up that's fun not to know i'm really happy not to know that's good (laughs) i think it's i think it is important um to keep the integrity of the art is to just kind of you know um it's interesting. My my wife uh, my wife is a sign language interpreter, and part of her part of her education was taking a linguistics course. And they talked about the evolution of language and how as as uh, older generations are always like young people are they speak incorrectly, and this slang is this and and it's that. It's like no no. I mean, you this is how we perceive it, but we are you are literally watching evolution happen. And this this you know the English language alone. You know, the very first iteration of English didn't sound, doesn't sound anything like what it is now, and it won't sound anything like what it is in four hundred years from now. And I think music is the same way, and you just kind of have to, you just kind of have to go. All right, you know, you're either you're either getting on the train or you're standing at the station, and uh, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. I mean, it's depressing because there are there are people out there who are like seventeen years old doing the craziest stuff oh, on yeah. their instruments, playing with incredible proficiency, incredible um, wisdom. Like somebody like uh, Jacob Collier, who's like one of my favorite m- mutants. And he, <laughs> he's a <yeah>. mutant. <laughs> he, plays, he plays every instrument with history. 
you know? Like he, and but then he's also doing this really, really fun, adventurous stuff and, and exploring ideas that are new to him and Have, and really stretching the bounds of what he does. But he has the history. He's studied the music. He's he's transcribed the greats. And the dude plays every instrument with that same re- respect and reverence. And I think that there's something incredibly cool about that. And it also makes me want to quit. <laughs> you know? Have you ever seen those videos he does where he'll break down the logic session of a song? Oh, yeah, I've seen them all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, like hundreds of tracks or whatever on a, that go into one of those songs. I'm like, how do you even wrap your brain around keeping everything organized, you know? But, I mean, like that, that dude, like... His creativity was fostered. He talks about growing up and, and uh, um, you know, both of his mu- parents are, are pretty heavy musicians themselves and they, they just, they saw him take, a, um, take a, a shining to music and so they were just like, here, have all, mm-hmm. here, every instrument, little percussion things, a harmonica, a bass, a this, a that. And they just, you know, uh, the way he kind of described it was like, you know, but they, they just got out of the way. Here, play in the, play in the sandbox. And I think that that is... Um, part of that chaos that you were talking about earlier, Andy, like saying like, you know, some of this chaos is missing and that, that like raw creativity, like the, the, um, uh, the, like this is, <laughs> I can't believe I'm about to say this, but like the wonder, the wonder of a child, you know, like I think about mm-hmm. my, my mom has a photograph of the first time I made music. She has a photo of one of my dad's friend gave me a harmonica and I, I had banged away at the piano, but I blew into this harmonica and this, chord came out this beautiful musical chord and then you know immediately you react and you suck in and this other great chord came out and then bam i'm making music and i was like i don't know two or three years old maybe and there's like uh there's like this childlike thing to creativity when you get out of the way of it and i think people like jacob collier and and ethan gruska and and like uh, these are my favorite my favorite artists nowadays emily king you get this creativity that's just like and i think that that, that's also um one of the one of the the few benefits of this whole streaming culture i mean there's a lot of benefits to streaming i mean a lot of people love to complain about how people aren't making money off records but i've never made money off records so i don't care but um the what it what it does is it allows it allows these weirdos who would be chased out of major labels to make records on their own and, and, and get it to people who love it. The only reason why somebody like Jacob Collier is out there winning Grammys is because he makes music that means absolutely the world to him and it's about as honest as it could be and he's able to get it to people by himself. Right. You know, I'm sure he's got a label now, but like you never would have seen a guy like him getting signed mm-hmm. to a major label 10, 15, 20 years ago, because they'd be like, well, this guy's obviously really good at music, but who's going to buy this? And mm-hmm. like lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people. But, you know, I think that's, that is the beauty of nowadays with the, with the advent of the internet and social media and technology and all this stuff is that we are in control of our own destiny in a way that, that back then in the 70s where, you know, the budgets were abundant and, and you know, the Coke flew like the Murray River and uh, 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 flowed, pardon me, um, like the Murray River. And, and, and uh, there was, it was something different. But now there's, there's nobody saying, you should do this, you should do that. You know, right. we, we, at the very beginning of the Brothers Landreth, we had a lot of pressure. Um, before we got signed to our, our first record deal, we signed to a small label run by two, two guys um, that were really amazing. 
But when we were shopping it around our first record, we got all this feedback that was like, yeah, you know, you guys are obviously a good band, but the, but you know, the songs are too slow and the, um, the production is too clean. It's like, sounds like, sounds like kind of like a Steely Dan record. And that's not what people want right now. They want, they want the black keys. They want dirty. They want gritty. They want lo-fi. So we had people say like, take these songs and re-record them a little bit faster and uh, find somebody with a tape machine who doesn't know how to use it. And, <laughs> you know, and, and we were just kind of like, mm, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I don't want to do that. And I mean, if, if, like, I love the Black Keys, but I don't want to sound like the Black Keys. That's, I, I, I'm not, I'm, that's not my thing. This is, this is my thing. I grew up listening to Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder and um, Linda Ronstadt and, and Bonnie Raitt. We grew up listening to records that were made the way that we made our record. And, um, and that's, that sound resonates with me. And so we kind of stuck to our guns and then we wound up getting signed by a, a label that understood what we were doing and, and, and was willing to foster that same kind of creativity. And, and I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not world famous and I'm certainly not rich, but we've done really well. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that that's largely in part thanks to not Set, not making those compromises, mm-hmm. you know. It's one thing when somebody goes, "Hey, I like the song, but I don't, I don't think it's a single." Okay, cool. I, I, I can, I can get behind that. But if you're saying that everything about what I do is fundamentally wrong, um, I think actually, I think actually, your opinion is the common denominator, not me. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so then it's just not a good fit to work yeah. with you. And, and so, and, and in the early days of my career, like when I, I, I used to tour with a, um, a contemporary Christian artist by the name of Steve Bell, who's been a great friend and a, and a great mentor to me. And I had, I had, uh, I'd been on tour, I played on a couple of his records and then I started to tour with him. And then halfway through one of our runs, I played him a little demo of a song that I wrote. And, and I said, Hey, Steve, let me know what you think of this. Like, uh, and, and he just sort of said, I, th- I think this is really good. I think you should do this. I think you should, you should do, be an artist guy. It's like, okay, cool. Well, how do, like, how do I do this? Like, what do I, what does this even look like? I don't even know if people will like this. And he, sa- and, and he gave me a piece of advice that is probably the most valuable piece of advice that I've ever received. And it was, um, you don't, don't try to tailor your music to who you think might like it. Make the music that, that fires you up and go and find the people that it fires up. Don't like if you're if you're trying to create something for a demographic, you've already failed. Um, mm. You're missing the point. Um, and you know the hard part is putting the music out there and being patient enough to wait for people to find it. And mm. and that's and that's kind of what we did, and that's kind of what we've made our. Our, that's kind of been our our mission statement: is we we make the music that makes us feel feel really good, and then. You know, now at this point, we're fortunate enough to have a, a team of people that are working with us. But now it's the jobs of ourselves and, the, and that team of people to find the people that are going to love this music, not mm-hmm. the other way around, not make music that lots of people are going to love. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the motto of the whole new industry. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. It means you have to think harder about it. You can't just be high on coke out of your mind the entire time. You actually have to have some sort of sense of, of business. Um, to kind of keep your head on straight, but I, I, I think it is a better way. I do think it is a better way in a lot of ways. So, I don't know. Those are my okay. opinions. Well, I, I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this week uh, with Joey. So thanks again, Joey. 
And I gotta say, I'm impressed that you're not wearing some sort of denim. It was it was a it was a conscious decision. <laughs> I, I can't I can't I can't just hand you all these Canadian stereotypes on That's a silver true. platter. You we gotta, gotta work, work for it. it. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Joey. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. <laughs> <laughs>